0: This show is introduced to you by Global Healthy Living Foundation. The Global Healthy Living Foundation is a non-profit working to improve the quality of life for people living with chronic conditions through advocacy, education and patient-centred research. We wish to acknowledge the duck and young people as traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work. I pay respects to the elders past, present and future. Welcome to A Matter of Fact's. I'm your host, Steph O'Connell. I'm a health advocate, and a health communicator with a career in public health and public affairs. I've been a cardiac patient my whole life, but became a vocal vaccination advocate when my daughter narrowly survived meningococcal disease, which resulted in a kidney transplant, courtesy of her sister. And now, amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, in a podcast series, I want to explore vaccination, from the latest in COVID-19 to global immunisation and everything in between affecting you and our communities. What is a matter of facts. Not many people can say they've won a Eureka Prize, but our guest today can. In 2020, he won a Eureka for his infectious disease research. Professor Daw is an infectious diseases physician at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Australia. He's been involved in viral hepatitis and HIV research, care and public health policy for 20 years. We could go on about Professor Doar's accomplishments, but you need to know that last year, he's been notable for his vocal opinions on COVID-19 vaccines. And I'm fortunate to have him with me here today. Hi, Greg, how are you doing?
1: Hi, Steph, very happy to be here.
0: You made a comment about Denmark's COVID-19 strategies for population risk management, and you compared it to Australia and chasing donut dates. And you classically said, you thought Australia's path out needed Danish, not donuts. What is Denmark doing right?
1: Look, I think Australia was incredibly successful during 2020. We had a major the second wave in, in Melbourne and several hundred deaths from that second wave. But still in the context of the global pandemic in other countries, Australia did incredibly well. If we'd had the same population death rate as the United Kingdom, we would have had by now 50,000 deaths. You know, we've had 1,000 deaths. So that gives you an idea of the scale of benefit the public health response in Australia has brought. But the problem with that, and the problem with achieving zero COVID across the country for a long time, and still in place in many jurisdictions in Australia, is that it absolutely led to a degree of complacency. It led to the notion that we'd be able to continue, to eliminate the virus, to roll out the vaccine, the famous words of our Prime Minister, who said it wasn't a race, have come back to haunt him many, many times in recent weeks and months. I recall writing a piece in January this year, and trying to get people to have a sense of urgency and trying to make the point that we needed to vaccinate the country by winter. Because I was concerned about a major outbreak during winter, as we'd seen in Melbourne last year. But we undermined AstraZeneca, a highly effective and safe vaccine that was being produced locally by CSL. And now we're in the situation where we're trying to play catch up. And we're several months behind many countries in the Northern Hemisphere. We at least have some urgency now. And I think the Delta variant has clearly changed the game. And our very successful test, trace, isolate, public health systems that could control the previous variants are unable to do that with Delta.
0: So we should be confident in the vaccines for COVID-19 now and in future?
1: Well, if you look at the real world evidence, it's been... Absolutely remarkable. I mean, in fact, I think some of the vaccines have proven to be more effective than they look like in the clinical trials. So, if you think of Oxford AstraZeneca, some people were saying that it had modest efficacy based on a reduction in symptomatic illness that didn't look as impressive as the Pfizer vaccine. But when it's been rolled out in the real world, it looks like it's going to stack up absolutely as good as the Pfizer vaccine. So, I've been incredibly encouraged by the real world evidence. Often you see with a therapeutic or a prevention intervention, impressive clinical trials, outcomes, and then it's rolled out in the so-called real world and you're a little bit disappointed about the impact that it has for various reasons. But I think the COVID-19 vaccines have been amazingly impressive in what impact they've had. Yes, I said, I'm very, very optimistic. I'm also optimistic that there will be modifications of the vaccines, there'll be new versions that will be developed to respond to the variants that are currently circulating.
0: We're being told right now to run, (laughs) don't walk to get a vaccine. But for some people living with chronic conditions dependent on medication that might need to cease and restart around vaccinations, and particularly for those who are immunocompromised, it's been a pretty scary world and it's easy for them to feel that they are the most vulnerable, the words we hear so often from our politicians and chief medical officers. But is it necessary? And who really is at risk?
1: So look, I think if you look at vaccine responsiveness, and as you mentioned, some concerns around whether people who have some immune compromise might have a poorer response to the vaccine and less protection i mean broadly the biggest group with some immune compromise are, are the very elderly people's immune systems do decline as you age but if you look at the vaccine effectiveness it's remarkable how effective these vaccines are at age groups above 80 for example absolutely remarkable in fact it looks very similar to younger age groups so that tells you that these vaccines have amazing capacity to stimulate the immune system provide that sort of protection that's required against severe disease. Now, there will be some groups that are more immune compromised. And you think about groups post-transplant who are on fairly heavy duty immune suppressive agents. And there's evidence that those people have a less responsive what we call neutralising antibody response than a following vaccination. So that's a group that may require third doses, booster doses to try and optimise their protection. So if I was going to utilise any booster doses, I'd use it for those that had quite significant immune compromise.
0: And it's a goal for us to reach 80% vaccine coverage by the end of the year. And at that point, even in states where there's been little virus, Australia will be in the endemic phase and then there'll be breakthrough infections. Tell us about what that's going to look like and is there light at the end of the COVID-19 tunnel?
1: Oh absolutely and I think it's interesting to look at Australia as a bit of a test case because you've got jurisdictions at very different stages of living with the virus. I'd like to get to above 90% of the eligible population. I'd like to get to 80% of the total population. But I think we need to be aspirational. I think we need to shoot beyond the 80% mark and just keep going as far as we can go. And I think towards the back end of this year, we may need to provide incentives because there will be a small minority that will be very hesitant. And I think monetary incentives can go part of the way. I'm not in favour of mandating vaccines except in settings where there's a real risk to people. So healthcare settings, residential aged care settings, clearly workers in those environments should be vaccinated. And it's appropriate that there's mandatory vaccination, but I'm not broadly in favour of mandatory vaccination.
0: Just to explain, what is a pandemic pandemic? And what is an epidemic? What's the difference?
1: So an epidemic is where you get an outbreak of infection, for example, or disease in a particular setting or a country. It might be just within one locality within a country. A pandemic is where it has multiple countries across the globe involved. I think there is a strict epidemiological definition in terms of breadth of that outbreak situation that defines a pandemic basically means it's broadly Spread around the world in a number of countries in different regions to make it a pandemic. The issues around elimination and eradication of infectious diseases are interesting. And again, there's some misunderstanding of that. Elimination is a reduction of either infection or disease in a defined geographical area to zero. And we do have several major infectious diseases that have been eliminated by many countries. Think of polio. As a classic example, many countries have eliminated polio. Measles even is an infectious disease that has been eliminated from many countries. Eradication is a much tougher task. So eradication is global elimination. So no longer any infections circulating globally, and there's only one human infectious disease that fits that bill, and that's smallpox. So a highly effective vaccine that provided sterilising immunity, a major global initiative to eliminate then eradicate smallpox. But we've had these global initiatives around measles and polio and various other infectious diseases, and we've made enormous progress, but we haven't added to that one infectious disease on the list of eradication. So look, COVID-19 is not going to be on either of those lists.
0: Talking about vaccination and your health can be a difficult conversation. Our hope is to make it easier for you to understand and communicate these important subjects to your community. Please share this podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to hear more of Matter of Facts. To learn more, please visit our website, ghlf.org.au for vaccination facts video explainers and patient stories from all over Australia and be sure to subscribe to our news and community support from GHLF. You can also find us at Facebook and Twitter at GHLF Australia. I'm Steph O'Connell for Global Healthy Living Foundation and this is Matter of Facts.